show, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode number 193. You are rocking with your host, Matt Labrie, right here on the Decoding Success Podcast. We have a major announcement to share with all of you today. But before doing that, we have a major guest that we are bringing to you also. And I want to introduce this living legend that is gracing our airwaves today. We are joined by our friend, Sal Abatello. Now, Sal is absolutely monumental, not just in music, in business, in culture, and so much more. If you listen to hip hop, if you listen to pop, if you listen to dance, if you listen to freestyle, if you listen to rap, if you listen to jazz, whatever the case is, this gentleman has had his hands in it. He has pioneered, he has shaped the music industry, not just in the Bronx, not just in New York, not not just in the United States, across the globe. I truly mean that. We're diving into this individual story in just a little bit. Sal is an executive in the music business. He created and produced the freestyle urban dance pop trio, The Cover Girls, amongst many others. He is the owner of Fever Records. If you don't know what Fever is, make sure you go ask your parents because I guarantee you they know what it is. And he has been recently named to the Bronx Walk of Fame with many notable names as well. Absolutely amazing stuff. I can go on for days about this individual's bio, but I'm going to let him do the talking in this episode. We're diving into an array of topics from health to business, to success, to personal development. The list goes on. I'm really excited for you to dive into this with us. Many, many stories and a lot of things that I learned about Sal that I did not know going into it, especially him being a veteran, which is absolutely incredible. Now, in regards to the big announcement, you are the first to know. We have not told anyone about this. We literally haven't even put it on social media. We are on the course, the track to hit episode 200 in just a couple weeks. With that being said, we are hosting a celebratory event in New York City on September 1st. It is going to be absolutely incredible. We're inviting all of the past guests. No guarantees to who shows up. I'm just throwing that out there. That's a disclaimer. But we are going to have an absolutely amazing time. There's going to be food. There's going to be drinks. There's going to be music. There is going to be amazing individuals to network with. I can go on for days. The whole purpose is to get the community together to celebrate the world's opening. Let's have a good time. If you're interested in joining us in New York City on September 1st, make sure you look in the show notes, whether you're listening on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, iHeart, Amazon, Audible, wherever you listen to or listen from, I should say, scroll up to the show notes. You will see an Eventbrite link. Actually, it will be hyperlinked saying that this is the September 1st event. Click that. Everything is free, by the way. Everything is free. This event is non-charge. There are paid options. If you want to go the paid route, that's up to you. Regardless, that's for you to decide. I have no say in that. Make sure you check it out. Join us. It would be absolutely incredible to see you. And now, without further ado, we bring to you our friend, Sal Abatello. Sal, listen, excited to have you. You're a living legend. Uh, absolutely love everything you've been able to do and continue to do nonetheless. So thank you for joining us today. Nice. Thank God I'm living. I'm a living legend. <laughs> yeah, you, that you are. Listen, that you are. That you are. First question for you, Sal. This is how we kick off every episode. I'm curious to learn how you personally define success. Well, for me, success is definitely family. You know, definitely uh having a family uh, structure and then to uh, nurture those people to go out and, and repeat what you did and, and take it to another level. I came from a, a, an Italian heritage family where we're old school and everything and, you know, and, and hard work and passion. You know, when we came over, my family came over here from Italy, you know, 
they settled in in the Bronx. And uh, one was a shoemaker, one was a, a, a butcher. My grandfather owned a grocery store. My father owned a, a small lounge on the corner. And they put in 10, 20, 30, you know, 30 hours, whatever it took. Um, to be successful and bring home, bring home that money to your family so they could have a better life, you know, and, and a good education also. I love that. So you're all about legacy. I absolutely love that. I got to kick this off by asking, number one, what was it like growing up in the Bronx? Now, wh- when did you grow up in the 60s, 50s? 50s. 50s. What I'm was it six, like in the Bronx? I'm 68 years old. I was born in 52. Okay. What was it like in the Bronx back then? Well, we, we settled in uh, in um, uh, Bronxwood Avenue near Vanda High School, near okay. Gunhu Road. That's where we, my grandfather uh, saw a three-family house. And fortunately, my grandfather died while my mother was pregnant, so I never got to meet him. So I wind up living with my grandmother and uh, my mother, my father, and then eventually my uh, brother and sister. But growing up in the Bronx was great because my dad had a, a had a lounge and it was on 149th and 3rd Avenue. Now him and my mother grew up on 149th and Washington Avenue and 3rd Avenue. That's where they met. And my grandfather had that's where my uncles and all my relatives settled in in the Bronx, in the South Bronx, on 149th, 3rd. So my father opened up a, a, a neighborhood bar and things went terrible. Uh, you know, the opening night, he had borrowed money from like the mob and stuff to open up. And the opening night, there's a fire and half the place burns down. Oh. The whole roof was burnt. The ceiling was uh, like had a huge hole in it. And then it was raining. People had umbrellas at the bar. I mean, this is the story he told me on the opening night. Uh, so what happened was, you know, then he had to borrow money again to refix it. So he was really in the hole and he worked two, three jobs besides owning a bar. So me, instead of me being home, my mother had a 10 bar in a day. So I grew up on 149th Avenue. I was the only white kid there. And, you know, we played in the sprinkler and we had the little with the little uh, milk box where you shot your baskets. And, you know, so I grew up in the street. I grew up on Motown and R&B and Chubby Checker. And, you know, that that's that was my environment. I didn't know anything about prejudice until I went to grammar school. And then I was like, oh, shit, <laughs> it ain't like how, how we live. We have my dinner table at Thanksgiving and Easter is black and I have black uncles, you know, and aunts. So it was a right. it was a rude awakening going to grammar school. Well, who uh, let's actually fast track just a little bit. Who was Sal in high school? Right. Who were you back then? Who were you hanging out with? Uh, what were you looking to do with your life? How did you define success back then? So I went to Immaculate Conception. Uh, we were at Catholic school. You know, my father mm. worked three jobs to try to get us into Catholic school, me and my sister and uh, my other sister. So we went to Immaculate Conception on, on Gun Hill Road. And like I said, we're, I even got married in the same church that nice. I went to uh, in grammar school. So when uh, when unfortunately for the for back then the guys in catholic school once you uh graduate grammar school you go to all different high schools so you know you you're not together like if you go into a public school like my kids live in eastchester everybody grows up together they live there together they go to the same high school together but us you know who went to ohala i went to ohala's who went to hayes who went to spellman who went to mount st michael's so everybody got split up so me and two of my friends we went to ohala's and again in uh, high school, I wasn't too much into books. I wasn't I wasn't a reader. Uh, I was really good at math. So me, I was a jokester. I was the, the class clown, always doing something wrong, always getting in trouble, always 
school and and uh, and the detention and uh, my aspirations was um I love music because I grew up on it in the bar with my dad and my uncle and my father wind up in 1969 when I was a junior in high school. He opened up another bar called Pepper and Salt on 167th and uh, Jerome Avenue in the Bronx. And that's where I went to work. Uh, it was my first job. I was 17. I was a waiter. And, and the first night I worked there, I had this great mags, these spoke wheels. It was, you know, and they stole the ball. And I was like, that's it, Dad. First night, I'm out of here. They stole all my spoke wheels. Because back then, you know, you just put them on like a, a hubcap. And they would just take them off. Took two seconds. So uh, that high school, I, I loved basketball. I played it uh, every day of my life. Uh, unfortunately, I was really short in, in, in school. I grew later on to be about 5'8", but I was like really short. So I, I couldn't make the high school team, but I was great at intramurals, street ball I played all the time. And I actually got better when I was 19, 20, 21 uh, playing ball. But uh, that was my aspirations, you know, music and sports and uh, not too much education because I didn't go to college. I wasn't, I wasn't into it. I didn't think it was for me. Now, let me ask you, you got to keep it real with me when I ask you this question. Who was better at basketball or who would win in a game, you or your son, Mickey? Uh, Mickey would kick my ass. He'll kick your ass? Really? Yeah, Mickey. Well, Mickey's six foot. You know, I'm five eight. I mean, <laughs> uh, he had a different game. You know, I was I was relentless. Like, I, I don't know about one-on-one, but in a, in a full-court game, you know, I, I could see the court. I, I, I was a winner, you know. I, I would take my team and make it better. I could pass. I could shoot. I could rebound. I could grab the rim with two hands. I'm only 5'7", five, 5'8". Five, you know, I had ups. Um, but, you know, Mickey was a scorer, and Mickey's, you know, he's big. But right. I think in, in a regular game, when we played in the backyard up until he was 16, I was kicking his ass. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Now, you know, you mentioned that you were growing up in the lounges and whatnot. Did you ever see your career taking the trajectory it has? Or did you just think you might, you know, take over one of the one of the lounges, one of the bars? Well, what happened was when I uh, graduated high school, I went to sat, you know, I, I, w- I was supposed to go to Fordham. And I went and sat on the steps for the first week. I didn't go in. My mother thinks I'm going to school and I ain't going to school because I was like, I just wasn't into reading. I just wasn't into schoolwork. I was so happy high school was over. And uh, my father happened to open up another bar on Gun Hill Road in the Bronx and Boston Post Road. And it was called the Abbott's Golden Hour. And um, uh, I wind up working there. And in the meantime, I wind up joining the Navy. So I joined the Navy for six years. And that was during when we had the Vietnam War was going on. Mm-hmm. I joined for six years. I joined four years uh, uh, reserve and two years uh, duty, you know, uh, full duty. So uh, they were training us to go to Nam, And me, uh, I got picked to be a corpsman uh, where we would be, you know, with the little We'd have to have a Marine uniform and we'd be right. running on the battle of the the, the, the injured uh, soldiers. So one day I had a flat tire and I'm on Burke Avenue in the Bronx where we grew up. And my friend's going to night school, Norman, and pulls up. And I said, yo, Norman, I got a flat tire. I got to get to Fort Schuyler. You know, I'll get in a lot of trouble if I don't be there. You know, this is the, the Navy, you know. So he said, all right, I'll take a ride with you. I t- he takes his ride with me. He comes home. I made him join the Navy with me. <laughs> <laughs> he's supposed to be in college too and he comes home and we're both sitting on the stoop he's going oh my god 
What am I going to tell my mother? I was supposed to be in school, and I just joined the Navy for six years. So we went we went on the buddy system uh, where we would be together the whole time. And then uh, luckily for me, I got discharged, um, and he went on to Vietnam, and he never spoke to me again. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> well, first and foremost, Sal, I didn't even know this about you. Thank you for your service. I want that to be said right away. Um, secondly, I got a question. I mean, what was your biggest takeaway from being in the Navy? Um, well, we, we were stationed at St. Albert's hospital and it was, it was just, I mean, I was only 18. It was terrible. I'm seeing all these kids coming back my age, 18, 19, 20, no Mm. legs, no arms paralyzed from the, you know, and you're trying to feed them and they're spitting the food back in your face. Like they hated life. It, It was just heartbreaking to see all these young kids that, you know, didn't get a chance in life and that their life is almost over already. You know, I was in the, like the paraplegia ward. So it, right. it, it was just heartbreaking what I saw. And I would never want to see anybody, anybody's kids go to war again. And I hope we never see that in our lifetime. Yeah, I definitely could imagine that putting life into perspective. I mean, I, I read a book, uh, I, I've never been in war, um, you know, knock on wood. I'm grateful for everyone that served, but I read a book called A Man's Search for Meaning and it was all about what happened in Auschwitz and things of that nature. And, you know, just even hearing you talk about it like this, I'm getting the chills over here because it really puts life into perspective. So I appreciate the vulnerability and the transparency. Sure. Um, so talk to me about the timeline here. You know, you're, you're out of the Navy at this point. What happens next? So now I'm, I'm 18 and going on 19. My father opens up this, like an Italian uh, Guido bar uh, in, in, in the Bronx. And uh, back then in the uh, early 70s, this is like 1970 now, 71. And uh, back then it was about 15 bars, nightclub lounges in the Bronx. And they were all like Italian, uh, uh, mostly Italian heritage bars. And uh, every bar... And there were bands. There was no DJ at that time. So all the bars had bands in them. And every week, each bar would try to get the best band in the area. So we had a bar at our place. The bandstand, the stage, was behind the bar. Uh, the band was behind the bar. And um, it, it, it it's great because I'm tending the bar and the band's back there. So you're the center of attraction, the bartender and, and the band. So now who's in the band? Chaz Palmolari, you know Chaz Palmolari from Of course, I know Chaz. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were really good friends, and he had a band called Razamachaz, and he would play there six nights a week. Uh, you know, every uh, maybe two months he'd come in, and he'd play there, and we became really good friends. And he's just—he's a good basketball player, a real sports jock. Uh, we used to go to Arthur Avenue and go play ball in the morning. After we'd be out all night, uh, he'd be singing, and I'd be tending bar. And then after we'd like go pick up two chicks and go do what we had to do, <laughs> and then we go get undressed, and then we go to Arthur Avenue we play some ball and then by 12 o'clock we were dead and we would go home and sleep and wake up at seven o'clock and do it all over again the next night uh joe pesci also had a band he he played in the club uh when he first started and uh, uh uh vincent uh what's his first name frankie vincent which was in joe's band and uh he passed away he was the godfather on the sopranos unfortunately for me all those guys went into acting and uh, chaz was talking trying to talk me into going into it and i never did and look at them all they all did great they all was in the all those great movies and uh, they became all big actors from the same place i grew up in 
No, you took a different trajectory though, but you had amazing success nonetheless as well. I mean, when did it come about when you opened your first place? Uh, I, I think I was 19. I opened up after our place in the Bronx on Gun Hill Road. It was after I had a little card game going and we had a little, uh, we had like a Joker poker machine and, uh, you know, a little bar there. And uh, it was downstairs. We had a camera to come in. And so after work, I would be tending bar and then I get everybody to come there after hours. But it was my place. I was partners until like uh, the mob came and said, yo, kid. You can't be having a blackjack game unless you kick it up. And I'm like, kick what up? He says, you got to kick up the money. And I was like, that's it. I locked up the place and I was gone. Really? <laughs> I said, I, I'm not getting I'm not getting involved with that shit at 19. I was just going to ask you, what would it, what was it like operating around that? You know, uh, I mean, clearly, uh, you know, they put some pressure on people, you know. Uh, what was it like? Well, luckily, my, my family was, you know, uh, connected w- with marriage and, and all Italians are connected somehow. You have the Italians that are that way and you have the, the Italians that are the other way, the, right. the family type. And, you know, and uh, Italians that grew up in, in, in that part. Uh, and luckily for me, I was, you know, on, on the other side of the fence, just that you're always around that. And it was amazing. I would be in a tending bar and, and, you know, sometimes there would be at least uh, five or six made guys in the bar at one time. Mm-hmm. And I'm 19 and, you know, it was very impressionable to see them and you, they're reading, you meet them out in the paper and then you serve them that night. So it, it was an experience, you know, something that, um, you know, uh, gets pretty uh, depicted on TV uh, and, and, and in movies like Goodfellas and all those other movies. Right. Has any anyone in particular that had a mob lifestyle impacted you in a way that maybe, you know, something that lasted a lifetime, you know, maybe a conversation as you were tending them or anything of that nature? Not anybody in particular. The only thing about the mob, uh, besides how they live their life, is, again, very Italians, very family. We're into food. We're into music. Right. You know, into having fun. We're into, like, uh, gatherings and having a good time. And then we're also into if, uh, you know, you do something wrong, you know, you know you're going to pay the consequences. So, right. and, and that's how we, we, we grew up, you know. Everything was loyalty, respect. And if you got disrespected or somebody was uh, disloyal, you know, you you took care of it because uh, that's what we were about. Everything was tradition and family tradition and, and eating Italian food and linguine. That's what it was about. <laughs> the values, the values, 100%. I love it. Now, one thing I also love, and I, I constantly talk about this, I love how you pioneered and you spearheaded so many initiatives based off of findings. And those findings happen to be in music, specifically in different genres. You knew what was next, what was up and coming. Talk to me about that. I want to learn your mindset around that. Well, luckily for me, my uh, my talent was finding other talent. Mm-hmm. My talent was uh, uh, knowing the next thing that was going to happen. I Fortunately for me, I opened up the first disco in the Bronx. So like I told you, all the bars were having bands. And now all of a sudden, disco started in Manhattan. You know, you had all these big clubs going down like Xenons and, and Regimes and all these really classy places. But now they're playing records. They're playing areas records. Now the bands, one by one, all closing up they're closing up one by one because the band's coming becoming like prehistoric so me 
time I went to Westchester, I saw the DJs and I went and we had an Italian restaurant at the time that was not doing very well. And I told my dad, I said, come on, let me make it into a disco. So he agreed. And I brought in the first DJ in the Bronx and his name was a uh, funky bear. Um, his name is Lenny. And, uh, and it was on Williamsbridge road right off Pelham Parkway. And the name of the place, I named it after me, Sally Abbott's Playhouse. And we called it Abbott for sure because my uncle was a guitar player, actually one of the best guitar players in, in, in the country. He had a TV show and everything. He made records. And his name was Sonny Abbott. My father was Ali Abbott. My uncle was Sonny Abbott, his brother. And I, I became Sally Abbott on, on, with the, the name of the club was called The Playhouse. And so I, I did come from a, a musical family also. My father played the trumpet. My uncle played the guitar. I love that. That's amazing. That's incredible. Now, rap was coming about and you discovered this. You pioneered you pretty much pioneered it from the streets into, you know, established places. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, what was that like? Well, you know, once that scene died and all the the Italian clubs closed up one by one because, uh, you know, it, the DJ just took over. And then all of a sudden, you know, uh, the Bronx started getting multicultural. You know, uh, African-Americans start moving in. Uh, uh, Latinos started moving. Puerto Ricans, and then, you know, the Jewish people and white people started positioning themselves, maybe moving to Westchester, moving to Jersey, and then this new... Um this new movement started moving into the Bronx, which was great for me because that's what I grew up on. And mm. I felt very comfortable being around, you know, African Americans and Latinos because that's where I grew up. And I love playing sports. And that's what we did. We, we continued as we were uh, even in our twenties and thirties playing ball together. So what happened was when I, um, when I had that first disco, uh, I was very familiar with, with that, that type of music. So now um, my dad, I told you, he had that bar, salt and pepper. So that opened in 1969. I'm 17. Now it's 1976. And disco is blowing up all over. Really big. So disco is blowing up all over the place. And my dad says, let's open up a disco in the South Bronx, right down the block from Pepper Salt, because Pepper Salt was a jazz club. No mm -hmm. DJ, just jazz. George Benson used to go there. The Knicks would go there. It was a high-class uh, lounge that car, you know, ever see that movie Superfly? With the, I have. that big souped up car, the black one. He used to come, the guy that owned that car, they rented it for the movie. He used to come there all the time. That shit was parked in front of the bar. Actually, it, it influenced me to get my first one. So my first car uh, on my own was a purple Eldorado with big white wall <laughs> tires, a big white wall tire in the trunk. Not standing straight up, but flat in the trunk. Big, I mean, full white wall tire. On the front of the car was a bird. On the side of the car was two scrolls, half white top, uh, you know, half white uh, vital top. And inside was purple interior. It was off the hook. It was crazy. So I used, I used to drive around with that. And most of the most of the towns couldn't stand me for that. So, uh, yeah. So uh, so now. You know, uh, I, I'm very uh, hanging out at my dad's bar, you know, all the time after work. So I'm tending bar uptown, and then after work, I'd go downtown and then go to Pepper and Salt. So now we open up this disco in 1976 on New Year's Eve. And mm. my mother comes up with this name, which is a great name, Disco Fever, uh, because as it turned out down the line, that name became synonymous with so many uh, different movements. So, uh, we opened up the club disco uh, fever, and then I would go there after 
attending bar uptown. And uh, this guy, Sweet, after the first DJ would get off, this guy, Sweet G, George Godfrey, who was a uh, social worker, and he was in charge of a home where all foster children were. And he was, you know, uh, a guidance counselor there. And on the weekends, he would DJ. So I would go there. And he, after the other guy got off, who was okay, you know, he's doing nursery rhymes, and he's rapping to the crowd, and he's doing responses back and forth and I'm like damn what the hell is this I'm watching the crowd back and forth now in, in the disco I had in the Bronx you couldn't even talk on the mic we didn't put a mic in you know Studio 54 all the main big uh, discos you weren't even allowed to speak it was right. all about blending the records so the people could do the hustle and not be out of step you know that that's what it was all about The D, what DJ can keep that dance floor going from all night now here comes this guy and he's like Wolfman Jack and cousin Brucey and he's like hey Jack and Jill went up the hill to catch a pail of water Jill fell down Jack and he's doing all these nursery rhymes and then he's like say ho and I'm watching the whole crowd say ho throw your hands in the air put your hand. and everybody is repeating what he's doing he was like the Pied Piper and I'm just sitting back against the wall going yo this guy is making this entire room feel as one person so I'm watching the bar and I'm watching how people, couple, by a person by himself, a, a big audience, and these people now are getting to interact with each other. They're smiling across the bar because he's doing and saying is making them interact with each other. Stranger, now if you would just blend the records back and forth, nobody's going to talk to nobody. So mm -hmm. they started doing. Everybody's repeating and doing the same thing. So the club became as one everybody's throwing their hands in the air. And then it was a great opportunity for people to interact with each other and meet each other and speak and smile at each other. Hey, have a drink. What's your name? You know, and it became a real big social thing. That's what attracted me to it. I love that. I love that. And I, I can clearly see how passionate you are about music just from the way you talk about these stories. So I have a question in regards to passion. Number one, I guess it's a two part question in a sense. Number one is what would be your advice to someone listening to this who is looking to identify what that passion is? And I guess number two becomes what's your what's your advice in them actually pursuing it right because they're listen you know there's a lot of people out here in this world that don't pursue what they love um you know they get caught up maybe they go fully corporate and they just lose their dream or whatever like you clearly lived out your dreams still are living it out so i'm curious what you have to say in that regard well, you know, in the beginning, like I said, I, I didn't go to college because I knew my passion was going to be, you know, music. I wasn't sure. I, I, I didn't have talent I, to play an instrument or anything. I didn't grow up with that. I was mainly playing sports in my spare time. But, you know, I knew I did have passion and I mm. and I threw a, per, a birthday party for my dad. And that was my first promotion. It was at Marina Del Rey in the Bronx. And I was about 21 years old and I hired the Tramps. They were the hottest uh, disco group at the time. Now I'm only 20. I have no clue why I'm doing And I go rent out the place and I had my dad's, uh, I think it was his uh, 40th birthday party. No, 50th birthday party. And, uh, I sell tickets myself. I sell 550 tickets myself in the street by hand. There was no phones back then, no beepers, <laughs> no internet. You know, it was hand-to-hand -hand combat. And I packed the place, and that's when I realized, wow, you know, this is something I enjoy doing. But it was the passion. You know, it wasn't about the money because there was no money in that back then. I was a bartender. Mm. You know, but I, it had me around music my whole life, every night, five nights a week. And like I said, when I got off of work, I went to after hour plays, more music, you know, and you're drinking and partying. And that's what I wanted to do. And that was my, you know, so my, my uh, 
my instruction to somebody else who's interested in it. You got it. You, you can't be in it in the money in the beginning. It's got to be mm-hmm. for the love of it because the money will come later. If, if you become successful, it'll come later. And if it don't, that's okay too. If you could have a nice life and have a great job and be around that music and be a DJ or a producer or even a bartender and be in that, we're all going to go, we're all going to leave this place once in a, and we can't take nothing with us. So no matter how rich you are, how much money you have, you can't take it with you. We, we can't even, you know, if we're going to heaven. Right. Right. But, uh, you know, it, it's all about hard work and passion and don't be afraid to work. You know, I, two or three days in a row, I'd be up 24, 48, 76 hours in a row. Cause that's what I love doing. And, and, and through hard work and passion, you know, it, most likely you'll be successful. Right, right. You get rewarded. I love that. And I'm there's curious. There's all different levels of success. You know, mm-hmm. we don't got to be, you know, uh, Buffett. You know, we don't got to be, you know, uh, Shark Tank. You know, we could be mm-hmm. successful owning our, uh, you know, I have a nice little lounge in the Bronx called Evo Lounge. And, you know, it's a nice little spot, holds 150 people. And it's great. It's it's, it's beautiful. And, you know, you, and you're giving people work. And that that's what, uh, that's what uh, excites me about giving people work and opportunities to where they want to go. Right. Right. I love it. I love it. And on the topic of events, you were just, you know, talking about the story, how you threw the event at Marina Del Rey for your pops. Where do you see events going after COVID? Uh, I, I know we were talking COVID earlier. Um, where do you, where do you see the events going? Are they going to go back to normal in your eyes or is it going to be some, something different? Well, I think the little, uh, you know, uh, I mean, obviously they destroyed the whole business. They, they were so off with how they handled it with the 25% and the 50%, you know, I'm all, all for that. I'm all for safety and everything because, you know, people have died from this and I've had friends die and I've had uh, acquaintances and associates die, you know, but if you got the plane packed and you got the malls packed, and I just didn't understand. I thought the restaurants and the bars were probably uh, more safer because they were being really strict with the, the six feet with the table and the 25% because you don't want to lose your license. You know, so you're going to, you're going to abide by all the rules because you don't, you don't want to lose your liquor license because once you lose it, you might never get it back. So, um, I mean, the concerts is going to be the toughest because I don't know how they're going to judge every other seat or how many people, uh, you know, did the, did the, did the number of the COVID uh, come down? Uh, are people still passing away for it? So it still all depends on that. Are we going to get a second go round? Are people going to get it again who had it where they say, oh, you had it once, you can't get it again? You know, we don't, we don't know how that's going to go. Uh, hopefully, you know, it's coming back little by little with the little places. A lot of people did private parties. So some of the acts that I book, you know, at least got some work doing birthday parties, anniversary parties, because people didn't know what to do. So they did them in the house with just their family and relatives. But um, I don't know, man, it looks like maybe 2022 before we get back to any kind of normality. Uh, there's going to be dribs and dribs this year, because we have a few things coming out. You know, you got to use your brain. I'm doing a drive-in with my partner, Brian Rosenberg, you know, and I'm doing a little, I'm doing dinner parties uh, without entertainment. We're just having a DJ. That seems to be working because people want to go out, eat and have a good time. You know, right. our crowd is in their 40s, 50s and 60s now. So, you know, that's what they want. Good music. They want to reminisce and they want to eat and they want to have a good time. <laughs> We definitely love eating. That's for damn sure. Uh, a sure. question for sure. Uh, what is a question you wished more people would ask you? I know you've done interviews like this before. You know, is there something in particular that you wished more people would ask you maybe about your journey, maybe about life in general and how would you answer it? Uh, 
I don't know. Um, the the heartbreak of of when it ends, you know, that that hurts. Uh, or when you feel you missed a, an opportunity, uh, you know, like. I should have went into acting, you know, I, I, I was in Crush Groove. I should have pursued that and still do what I did. Uh, I probably should have opened up numerous fevers around the country, which I didn't do. And what happened was I got so involved with my neighborhood and trying to mentor, you know, in 1983 with the skate fever, disco fever, pepper and salt, sugar and spice, and uh, games people play, which is, was after our place. And then we started the record company, Fever Records, locally you know i was employing about 185 people in the bronx so i was just kind of tied into trying to make this neighborhood get out of the hole it was in because back then the neighbor the bronx was you know it was like a atomic bomb hit it you know mm. abandoned buildings uh, unemployment poverty uh, kids living in the street you know homelessness uh, it was terrible so i kind of got stuck down there and and all the russell simmonses and the leo cohen's and andre harrell's they went on to be big executives and very wealthy, but you know, I am so happy I did what I did. I think I made the right choice because I got to be a great dad. I coached all my children. Uh, I would work all night, get home at seven in the morning, go right out and coach basketball, baseball, soccer. My kids never missed a game without me being a coach, never mind being there, practicing. So that was great. Uh, being working at night gave me the opportunity to be with my children of their whole life and a lot of fathers were not at the games so all those big wall street guys and lawyers and and stockbrokers they couldn't come to the games and most of the moms are bringing the kids to the game and, and you know i got to see my kids play and both of them became uh all county one of my sons ali was all state and they made all county basketball baseball broke the the records in the high school for scoring points. So I had a great time not only being in the business in, in the hip hop and freestyle business, but being a, a dad and, and being with my family and kids their whole lives. And that goes back to exactly how you define success. You define it as family, you know, so everything's full circle here, but I'm curious to learn, like what's stopping you from going into acting now? If you find that it's something that you may have missed the ball on or something of that nature, why not now? Not a bad idea. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I will. Uh, I don't know. You think 68 years old? I ain't too old. Oh, come on. What do you mean too old? Listen, we, you know, we're, we're not going anywhere. Let's, you know, got to go for it. Right. Like if you're still interested in it, the way you just said it, you know, why not? <laughs> uh, well, not, eh, maybe you, maybe, maybe you just influenced me to do something. I hope so. Cause you're impacting people here. So why not? You know, uh, listen, we, you know, we, that's just what it is, right? Like we got to, we just got to try things. You know, I'm very proud of all the people that came out of my camp. And I'm not just talking about uh, the artists. You know, I've had managers. I got guidance counselors. I got I get so many emails from thank you, Sal, for giving me the opportunity and show me how to do this job. Because everybody who worked for me back then, nobody had a trade. It was all people who were unemployed. It was young kids, 18, mm -hmm. 19, uh, homeless kids. Uh, how many people lived in my club because they had nowhere to go? So uh, a lot of them now as adults are so successful and they have great jobs, great careers. And I'm really uh, just as proud as that as the music business of all the people that I discovered and came uh -huh. out of my club. Also, being blessed and being the chosen one to not only be a pioneer of hip hop, uh, but being a pioneer of freestyle. 
Right. Either music, but I definitely was one of the pioneers to bring it indoors to showcase it and see that. See, it did. The music didn't uh, move me. It was the movement of the national. I knew the young urban. Uh, in, uh, African American kids are the second generation of the of the R and B of the Motown. When I heard that hip hop, I was like, "Yo, this is their shit. This is gonna be their shit. It's gonna be their music. They're gonna be that's they're gonna be that's their town. That's how it's gonna grow. And that grew into be the biggest music in the world and supply so many jobs. And then in '86, when the fever uh, was closing after the movie Crush Root came out, I started seeing a lot of Puerto Ricans were becoming DJs for the hip hoppers, and they grew up on this old school hip hop, Flash and Curtis Blow and Sweet G and Starsky and you know everybody and Fat Boys. Unfortunately, we just lost the. Uh, Marky D the other day. Uh, we've been losing a few people. We just lost one of the Houdini guys just passed away. So, you know, a lot of my kids that I grew up, you know, I'm starting to lose the Mr. Magic and Junebug. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, Curtis Blow, thank God, he just got a heart transplant and he's doing great. I still talk to him and Sweet G. So uh, I discovered, uh, I brought in the indoors the freestyle and that blew up and and I did it with a nightclub. So I found these two movements with two nightclubs, Disco Fever and the Devil's Nest and two DJs, Grandmaster Flash and Little Louis Vega. And it's, it's like history now. It's I'm, I'm reaping all this, this accolades from these two nightclubs. I opened up 10, uh, 30 and 40 years ago. I love that. I love it. I love it so much. Now, Sal, I told you I'll get you out of here in, in a couple minutes. Uh, two more questions for you. I always ask these questions on the way out of these interviews. They're more about yourself. Uh, first one being, what is a piece of advice that you were given? could have been about anything in life. A piece of advice you were given that you didn't want to hear when it was given to you, but it ended up proving to be true. Uh, I should have stood in school. Uh, I, I was supposed to stay in school and go to college and work with my uncle who had a seat on the stock exchange. And, mm. um, you know, I thought that wasn't going to be for me. And it, look, not taking away from my whole life and my career and everything was great, but I, I would have loved that too. I, that would have been nice too, getting into uh, being a stockbroker. And uh, I love numbers and I love trading. I like that fastness about it uh, and investing and making people make money. So that would that that was that's something that I didn't listen to. That uh, I regret I didn't because I still right. could have been in nightlife and own uh, you know nightlife and still been a uh, in in the business world. Right, right, right. And I'm curious, you know, I didn't ask you this earlier. You've owned quite a few venues, uh, restaurants, lounges, etc. Hospitality in general is not an easy field to be in. Do you have a piece of advice um, for someone, not even just in hospitality, what's your biggest takeaway in general? Because listen, it's a people business, right? It's a customer business. Uh, you got complaints left and right. Uh, not always, but you know, it comes about. Um, but you know, it's, uh, what, what's your what's your take there? It's service. The, the hardest part in our business is service. That's the biggest complaint. People want to get this. They want their food immediately. They want their drink immediately. They they going through all shit all day with everybody else at work and everything. When they go out, they want to. They don't want to wait two hours for their food or you gave them the wrong drink. So service is the top number one complaint in our business and our trade. And that's what you got to stay on top of. Attended the cleanliness. You know, uh, the presentation, you know, making somebody want to come back, being humble, 
making them feel comfortable, being right. personable, all those things. That's what somebody wants when they go out. They want to hear good music. They want good food and they want a good drink and they want to get it when they want to get it right away. You know, they, they're coming out trying to forget their problems, what they went through all day. And they don't want to come and have more problems because right. you see that when how many beefs over the food came late, the food's no good. Even I ain't paying the bill. I didn't get this. You brought it. The other night I went to a restaurant. They brought my appetizers after the meal. Oh, shit. I got the meal after an hour and a half. And then the appetizers came in. Oh my God. Backwards over here. <laughs> I appreciate I'm that. Because I'm in the business. Oh yeah, of course. I think the people that are in the business are are more okay with it. You know, they have a they have an understanding. It's the people that have never been in the service industry where they're kind of just like a hole sometimes. They don't about know it, the know? trouble that goes on in in the kitchen. Let's say God forbid, one guy didn't come in. One of the the second cook or the third cook or your main cook is sick. You know, they don't know what's right. going on in there. Or the delivery with 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 the steaks or the food. You know, so that's another thing. Uh, you don't get your delivery. So many things could go wrong. You know, a work, a manager don't show up, you know, right. so, so many things could go wrong. A lot of factors in that industry. Now, Sal, last question for you here. If you could only give one piece of advice the rest of your life, meaning, you know, whether that's on another podcast, writing a book, doing a documentary, maybe to your grandchildren, whoever, whatever the case is, if you could only give one piece of advice the rest of your life, what would it be? To leave your legacy behind for you, for the future family that you're going to have, your mm -hmm. grandchildren, your children. That's all you got. You know, you you only got your respect and 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 your loyalty and and how you treated people in your in in your life. What you've done to make other people better. Yo, everybody can make themselves rich, but what came out of your line? What came out of your crew? What what did you do to make? other people's lives better. And that's what I always worked on, trying to make somebody else's life better. Level. I don't care. And I said at the same level, I was fine with it. I have so many people that came out of my camp that are multi, multi-millionaires and big business people. And I'm so proud. And when they see me, I'm still the boss. I'm st they still call me boss. <laughs> so, and, and even all the kids I coached, you know, all the kids that I even coached and those kids in this a lot of them, all my son's friends are such successful business people. And that's from people like me that, you know, take the time out. And when they're young and they're impressionable to send them on the right way and let them know that, you know, work, uh, work is the most important thing. And, and if you do all those things, you'll be successful. You'll be happy. I love it. Right. I agree. I agree. Sal, thank you again for this opportunity. Do you have anything going on with fever that we should make people aware of or any anything else in general that you have coming up? Well, uh, it's www.feverrecords.com. I kept right. the, the, the record name, not that I have a record company anymore. We just have the catalog out. And uh, a lot of stuff coming up. Uh, I got a lot of things that people are interested in, doing podcasts with me and, and some documentaries and some other stuff. Uh, they want me to do a picture book. You know, I have so many great photos from back in the day. And I've saved everything. I'm like one of those hoarders. I got tapes <laughs> and movies and videos, and I've saved everything. And I want to get it all out before, you know, unfortunately, like I, my, uh, my people are passing away and I, I'm 68 and, you know, you don't get any younger. You only get older. Thank mm -hmm. God for me, uh, the crazy life I led, the unhealthy life I led, uh, uh, staying out all night and I'm not a gin rap. Uh, I just play ball, but, uh, I, I'm happy that I'm in as good a shape as I am, uh, regardless of not really. That's some advice to tell you. Take care of yourself because when you get older, you don't want to go through this.
Right, right. I hear that. Sal, thank you again. I'm going to make sure the social links, websites, all that good stuff is easy to find for everyone that tunes into this. Definitely appreciate it. Thank you again, man. Hi, peace. Hi. And there you have it, episode number 193 with our friend Sal Abatello. Shout out to our boy Sal for hopping on here, chopping it up with us and adding value to all of us uh, through such amazing experiences and revolutionary experiences nonetheless. Make sure you're checking Sal out on social, his website, all of that good stuff is in the show notes. On top of that, make sure you're sharing this episode. If you're still listening to this, you clearly found it to be of value. Otherwise, you just left your phone on play and you're doing whatever. That's totally cool too. Regardless, the people in your circle, if you found it to be of value, will most likely find it to be of value as well. So make sure you're sharing it around there. On top of that, huge announcement made earlier. If you missed it, saying it again, September 1st, New York City, 200th episode celebration, food, drinks, music, networking, and more. Absolutely amazing individuals are going to be joining us. You have the opportunity to do so for free. Tickets are free. I throw that out there as well. It is going to be absolutely amazing. You can check it out in the show notes. And until next time, everyone, be blessed. Peace.